Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks and a move. I'm Corey Johnson, and today, October 19, gives us episode 120. Well, just ahead, Johnson & Johnson reports relatively weak COVID sales. We're going to tell you why that doesn't matter. Plus, Canadian National Railway's CEO has a sudden response to activist investors. It might involve two middle fingers. We'll have that story and... We'll look at a software company stitched together with duct tape, chewing gum, and whatever else it takes to keep acquisitions together. Progress Software CEO Yogesh Gupta explains his M&A mindset. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to the Drill Down podcast on any of your favorite podcast platforms and on your smart speaker by saying to your smart speaker, play the Drill Down podcast and listen to our latest show. And the Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T dot com to learn more. Did I tell you one of our listeners contacted me having hired Brain Trust because he needed a data scientist and he found a data scientist who advertised himself as one of the top 20 data scientists in the world for, you know, a project right there on Braintrust.com. Who knew? That's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T dot com. <laughs> who can't spell Brain Trust, really? I don't know. It's spelled out in the script, so I just read it. Good work, Isaac. Thank you very much. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got the business stories behind the stocks move. And yes, we have executive producer Isaac Webster with the three most important developments in the world of business today. Isaac? Corey, let's start with the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, otherwise known as the OECD. I can spell it's, that also. Can it's spelled you? like brain trust, <laughs> just not with all the letters and the no. So the OECD said today the that the global, the, the global economy setback from, from the pandemic is expected to largely stabilize by the end of next year, that's 2022. And the OECD said, sees most major economies returning to pre-pandemic growth paths by 2025 at the latest. But the OECD cautions that the rebound could be delayed if the pandemic drives a retreat from globalization and it also said governments must begin taking action to reduce the towering amounts of debt left behind by stimulus measures. All right, well, two corrections. Okay. OECD, none of those letters are in brain trust, number one. Number two, oh <laughs> we already see a retreat from globalization. We see, for example, semiconductor companies being uh, building fabs in regions because they don't believe they're going to be able to continue to rely on a global supply chain, i.e. getting semiconductors out of uh, Asia, Taiwan, and China in particular. We already see um, a retreat from globalization with manufacturing moving with much more onshoring happening, offshoring in decline. So, I, you know, they're already saying, I, I think their numbers are already at risk, even as they're just a brand new development today. Time will tell. Now let's move on to Coinbase. Coinbase signed a multi-year partnership branding deal with the NBA. It's the NBA's first cryptocurrency sponsorship deal. The agreement extends to the Women's National Basketball Association as well, the WNBA, the NBA G League, the NBA 2K League, and USA Basketball. 
Terms were not disclosed, but the NBA will provide the Coinbase exposure during televised games. Well, uh, in fact, in in Coinbase's uh, headquarters here in San Francisco, you know what happens tonight? What? The Warriors are playing. It's the first game of the NBA season. It's a double opener, isn't it? Uh, I think there's just at least three games. There are a million games today. I think there's three games today. Well, there you go. Uh, so look out for Coinbase. All right, now let's move on to Jersey. New Jersey is the first U.S. state to tally $1 billion in sports bets in a month. New Jersey sports betting volume was up by thirty over 35% in September from last year's level and 52% higher than the August total. 91% of the action in New Jersey during the month of September was through online sports books. Two more corrections. Oh, God, here we go. Spell not it out for games. me. It's Spell not it three out. games, it's two games. You were right. Oh, so I was right. There you go. I like and that correction. the Warriors correction. are not playing in San Francisco at home. They're playing against the Lakers in Los Angeles. Oh, hopefully no one's going to email me because I didn't listen past that to get to the And the, the Nets and the Bucks are playing in Milwaukee, the defending champion Milwaukee Bucks. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? You know, Isaac, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked. Let's start with Johnson & Johnson. Uh, any relation? None, sadly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This would be a different but podcast. We, but we, my family did start Johnson Carpet, so we had that going for us. Okay. Did they, were they ever publicly traded, Johnson Probably Carpet? Probably should have started Johnson & Johnson and invented <laughs> Q-tips or something instead. <laughs> All right. Johnson & Johnson trades under J&J, as many of us know, as shares rose 2% today, and they've gained just 13% in a year, which is well below the average. Um, what's going on with Johnson & Johnson? Yeah, they reported quarterly earnings. Um, it's just such a giant company. I just thought it was worth looking at a company with, uh, you know, 40, $32 billion market cap. I don't typically dig into companies like that because everyone else is already looking at them. But quarterly results were pretty strong. Uh, revenue's up 11%. Drug sales, uh, a, a big part of that, uh, up 14%. They cited a couple drugs, Darzelix for multiple myeloma, Immune treatment, Stellara, the psoriasis drug, uh, Tremphia, top performers for them. You'll notice I didn't mention the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, uh, and, you know, that company did $500 million in sales for that quarter. Not particularly strong for them uh, for that COVID vaccine. And the CEO is saying, hey, it doesn't matter. It's not being offered. It's a non-for-profit uh, basis for the sales of this drug right now. It's not material. The broader portfolio across all their other sort of three units, those three units being um, consumer health, uh, pharma, and med devices. You know, med devices, pharma's big, 55% of sales in 2020, to be sure. But medical devices is a very big business, uh, not just below a third of the company's entire business. Medical devices up 8% to $6.6 billion in the quarter as elective surgery started to come back. So I thought it was interesting to look at, look at the sales of medical devices as to what it tells us about the return of healthcare as usual. And also, you know, you think of COVID as something, I don't know, one might think of COVID as something that's good for J&J because they sold, as I mentioned, $500 million worth of COVID vaccine in the quarter, but as on a non-for-profit basis. But in fact, COVID's really hurt this company because fewer elective surgeries are happening, fewer medical devices are being put into people's bodies or being used to uh, administer their surgeries. And you can look at what's happening in the world in COVID by looking at what's happening in J&J's Medical device sales across the world. Here's uh, their chairman of medical device sales, uh, Ashley 
McAvoy. When I look at quarter three, uh, you know, as we shared, procedures across most categories in which we participated did decelerate through the quarter, primarily due to, obviously, the Delta. So if I take you a little bit around the world, Asia Pacific and aggregate continues to operate above pre-COVID levels. Um, however, COVID does continue to be a challenge with, like, mobility restrictions being reinstated or remaining in places like Japan, Australia, Southeast Asia. China clearly is setting a new pace for the world. When we look in the United States, we saw procedure trends decelerate in quarter three. You'll recall um, on our quarter two call, we were feeling pretty good, around 5% growth in procedures in May. We saw a stabilization in June and July. In August, we saw the numbers of procedures dip um, around mid-single digit, and we saw that continue into the early part of September. Um, we are starting to see, you know, qualitatively recovery from hospital systems the, the past four weeks. When we look at um, early indicators of, of really filling the patient funnel, we look at diagnostic procedures. In the past four weeks, we're seeing diagnostic procedures in the United States flat relative to pre-COVID numbers. Um, and as we talked about, we, we do expect some microsurges in areas like the Northwest uh, as well as the Midwest. And then in EMEA, rounding it out, we, you know, we are encouraged that countries are beginning to ease the strict mobility restrictions and are really starting to resume procedures given the vaccine deployment accelerations, you know, the decreasing rates of new cases and hospitalizations. And overall, you know, procedure volumes are gradually improving, like Spain, Italy, Germany are all above pre-COVID. The UK, where I was just there two weeks ago, clearly below 2019, long waiting lists, uh, really working to go make progress on that, on that patient funnel. So there you go, around the world with Ashley McAvoy, um, what Fortune Mag who Fortune Magazine said is one of the 50 most powerful women in the world, and who am I to doubt them? Um, but yeah, it is interesting how COVID has really governed the sale of medical devices for J&J around the world and continues to. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at EverQuote. It's a bills, it was a billion dollar business a year ago. A lot smaller right now. EverQuote trades under Ever, E-V-E-R. Shares fell 13% today and they've lost 58, 58% in a year. Yeah. Yeah, much smaller company than it was, uh, as you mentioned, today um, in terms of market cap, um, $440 million market cap today after that sell-off. company pre-announced a bad quarter uh, this morning and a warning that when they do report the quarter, revenues are going to be about $107 million. They gave a million-dollar range, half a million either way, compared to the $110 million that they had guided towards. It's not a huge, you know, 3% less big whoop. Um they said their marketing margin will be lower um, and their earnings or their losses will be bigger. Um, uh, they like to talk about their adjusted EBITDA. Uh, what is the company? Well, this company has a marketplace for insurers. So they offer insurance products. Uh, they try to find customers for insurance companies and they try to find insurance companies willing to sell that insurance. And they warned about something that no other company that we've listened to has told us. So I'm going, to, I'm going to offer this up to our listeners and see if you believe these guys, basically. They're either on the cutting edge of something or they're just making something up here. But they said their third quarter performance was, quote, impacted by challenges in the auto insurance market, where several of the big carriers, their key carrier customers, had higher than expected claim losses. And that meant that they pulled back on marketing and digital marketing in an attempt to restore profitability. We've heard this nowhere, evidence that accidents were higher and claims were higher for car insurers 
and that they're responding by pulling back on their digital marketing. Company says they think the industry dynamics are just temporary. Now, this flies in the face of what they said they were going to do. Only a couple months ago, I went back and listened to the CFO, John Wagner, speaking at an investor conference in August. So it was two months ago, but still, um, they were suggesting that they were essentially immune from any swings in marketing spend because the insurers were rushing to be online and were late to do so. And therefore, uh, they weren't really worried about any pullbacks that were ten- that were because of uh, profitability of the insurers. And they weren't worried about competition because they really felt they were in the right place at the right time, regardless of uh, weekly or monthly market dynamics and the spending levels of the big insurers. Here is that CFO, John Wagner. We certainly don't feel that we are competitively constrained. We feel like not only this is a massive market, but it's a massive market uh, that is moving online. Auto insurance digital spend is growing 16% per year, um, probably by one of the lower estimates. And that is not a reflection of just you know advertising growing. That's dollars shifting from, from offline to online where the consumers are already shopping for insurance. So there, so there is basically the industry shifting to online somewhat late to the party. But, but that's where the consumers are and that's where the dollars are shifting. So we don't feel like we are competitively constrained um, because it is such a large and growing market. We, you know, we feel, we make the analogy to, uh, we, are, we are fishing boats on a very large ocean and it, it has more to do with how we execute against the opportunity, how we fish from our boat uh, versus, uh, you know, how they are fishing. It, it's just a very large market and a growing market and I think, you know, no doubt there will be uh, many players that do well. Well, what I'm not doing so well uh, is, in fact, uh, Everquote uh, announcing just weeks after those comments from the CFO that they are, in fact, uh, constrained by the growth in their own uh, insurers that they work with. And, and I should mention also cutting costs by 10% in order to deal with that. Corey, what is your next drill down? Brand new results from Canadian National Railway. Canadian National Railway trades under CNI shares were flat today, but they've gained 11% in a year. What's going on with CNI? Well, stock up up a lot after hours when after they reported earnings. Um, So, uh, you know, so much talk about supply chain, right? So much talk about moving goods and services throughout the United States and indeed throughout the world. Railroads play a huge part in that. Um, And so I thought it'd be interesting to look at what these guys are up to. And also because there is, in fact, an activist investor pushing for change at this company. Um, just this week, TCI Fund Management, just yesterday, uh, run by billionaire Chris Hone, uh, went through this lengthy 102-page presentation Monday about what Canadian National needs to do now that its smaller rival, Canadian Pacific, agreed to acquire Kansas City Southern with its routes through the central U.S. and indeed into Mexico. And among the things they urged the company to do was get rid of the CEO, Jean-Jacques Roost. Um, and um, find some who's, you know, marketing guy really, and find somebody with real railway operation experience, maybe even the COO. So what happens when they announce results just a day later? Jean-Jacques Roux says, I'm out of here. He announced his retirement. He says by the end of the year, he's gone. He's going to try to, the board has hired a group to, uh, 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 convened a group to, to look for a new CEO, but that he expects to be out of there by the end of the year. And so the activist investors Careful what you wish for. Now this company is uh, got a lame duck CEO, and we'll see who we get by year end 
um, which is when he says he expects the transition to happen. Here is Jean-Jacques Roost uh, talking about the business, but he was also saying, you know, the expectation that the uh, that the actors investors, I should point out, they wanted them to spend more money and upgrade parts of the railroad. Roost is saying, we've already done that. In fact, we're going to cut costs and, and capital expenditures as a percentage of revenues right now. And we're going to enjoy the, the efficiencies we've already built into our system. We are targeting $700 million of additional operating income for next year. We intend to use a balanced approach, including optimizing railroad productivities and labor costs. We also expect to adjust our capital spend to 17% of revenue. We can do this without compromising our absolute commitment to safety and customer service because of the current good condition of our network and by putting to good use the technology investment we made in recent years. So there they are. We've already made the investments. Now we're going to reap the profits and we're going to lower uh, the CapEx spend as a percentage of revenues. Uh, maybe not what the activist investors wanted, but the CEO is not going to be there to kick around anymore. All right, coming up. Eternal question when you want to grow your business. Do you buy it? Do you build it? Well, a company that says buy it has been Progress Software. They've done a lot of acquisitions. M&A is at the heart of the growth of this company. CEO Yogesh Gupta tells us all how to do acquisitions and make them work. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. Hi, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We're joined right now by Yogesh Gupta, the CEO of Progress Software. Uh, joining us from Boston area. Glad to have you. Um, Yogesh, uh, tell me about your business. How, what, what does the Progress Software, what, do you, what are you guys known for? So, Corey, thank you for having me on. And, you know, Progress is a company that's been around for 40 years, and we built software that's actually used by other technologists. So primarily focused around other people who build software and as well as uh, uh, used by uh, people who run uh, business applications. So it really is focused on um, a technical audience uh, and, and um, um, our products help them build amazingly wonderful looking applications, truly engaging applications, um, uh, applications that are smart, intelligent, um, they, that leverage all the information that they might have in their systems and deliver uh, real value to the business by helping them connect better with their customers, partners and other constituents. Be down a little bit further uh, to the customer level there. So, what kind of customers specifically is sort of your 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 great example of what your software does? So, I, I think my our customers uh, primarily uh, fall into a couple of interesting categories. Corey, one of them is technology companies themselves. So, uh, there are one thousand seven hundred software companies who use our products to build their products. So in, in that sense, we we are uh, something that is sit, sitting underneath the uh, a very large segment of the tech ecosystem. And there, there are companies like Microsoft and Oracle and SAP and all the big names and many, many of the smaller names that, that leverage our products for their products. The, the second um, set of audiences really enterprises of, of pretty much any vertical. So uh, whether it is Quicken Loans or JP Morgan Chase, or whether it is uh, the World Health Organization, uh, or, or whether it is uh, Harley Davidson building motorcycles, or uh, you know, or whether 
it is Visa, MasterCard, or American Express making sure that their infrastructure can scale for you know high demand during holiday season and so on. I mean, it's a, it, it's, it's a who's who of customers on the enterprise side as well. Um, so talk about the, the selling environment then. How do you sell your software and to whom do you sell it? And how has it changed over time? So we uh, sell our software to, um, again, folks within. Uh, so if it is a direct enterprise, if it is an enterprise like a JP Morgan Chase or uh, an American right. Express or, 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 or whoever, you know, then we're selling to the IT organization. And um, uh, if, if it is, however, to, uh, you know, businesses like Microsoft and so on, we're selling to their VP of engineering or somebody who's responsible for building a product where we believe that our product can offer better value and better building blocks because, you know, pro products that are powered by progress actually are remarkably uh, resilient, high performant and, and so on. So um, in, the world has changed quite a bit when it comes to selling as, as Corey, you can only imagine, right? You know, yeah. uh, the change started many years ago. Uh, there is more emphasis today on go-to-market partners, distributors, resellers, et cetera, for the broad enterprise market segment. Uh, it also includes a lot more inside sales, online sales, uh, e-commerce. Uh, and, and so uh, the, the, the selling has gone from, you know, people meeting face to face and shaking hands. That still happens sometimes, uh, or used to happen at least until um, COVID even put uh, a stop to that for a while. So, uh, uh, but, but it has become much more online. It has become much more uh, virtual. Right. Um, Marketing also has changed because of that. I, I, when, when I've read up in your company, the way I, I kind of understand the product is that the product really lets companies set up their own custom software applications and it helps them sort of manage that on that platform. Is that, is that the wrong way to think of what you sell? Uh, no, I think that is absolutely the right way to think of it, uh, except that there is a large uh, group of my customers who are software companies themselves. Sure. So who then offer their software to other companies. So I'll give you an example, right? Uh, there's a public company. I think they, in fact, I think they're in the process of going private uh, called QAD software. They are a, a you know, mid-size um, manufacturing uh, application solution provider uh, that sells to thousands of manufacturers around the globe for, you know, for those manufacturers to manage their manufacturing processes and supply right, chains and so on. Right, very high area software right and, now. Exactly. And, and, and we our products are underneath their products. So they've built their products on top of ours. So enterprises can build those applications for themselves or a software company can build applications and offer it to enterprises. And does that mean when they're selling through the channel, does that customer end up selling your software just by virtue of the fact that their customers ultimately need your software relying underneath theirs? That's exactly correct. They actually end up, um, uh, our software is bundled with their software. They end up paying us royalties. Uh, so from a financial perspective, the relationship is very much a, you know, th think of it as Intel inside a, 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 a PC, right? Uh, it's progress inside uh, their products. Um, it, it's also nice to have a little help from friends when you're selling your, your stuff. Um, you, I mean, <laughs> it, I, that's got to help you in terms of your sort of... Uh, uh, ultimate uh, operating profit margins, not the gross margins, which for any software company could be fantastic. You're absolutely right. In fact, if you look at our operating margins for a company our size, you know, we we are going to, you know, we've guided that we're going to be around $550 million in revenue this year. Our operating margins are going to be 40%, right? And, and, and you just don't get those kind of operating margins at a company our size and scale um, unless you have a very efficient go-to-market 
motion. The R&D expenditure is what it is. It has to be, right? So the engineering costs are, uh, you know, we, we actually spend 20% of our revenue on R&D, but you're absolutely correct. Our go-to-market motion is very, very cost-effective. And it's also interesting to me that you've been doing a lot of acquisitions. I don't fundamentally understand uh, um, acquisition strategy when it comes to software companies. You know, like I, 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 you know, I've, I say that having covered software for well over 20 years, but you know, when, when Oracle would go out and say, okay, we want to buy people soft because we want to have HR software, or we want to buy Seawell because we want to have CRM software. We have an offering. It's not as good as what's out there. I get that. But you guys have done sort of tuck in acquisitions that I, what, what, what is the strategy there and how does that work from a technological standpoint? So I think there are two parts. I think we used to do a Corey Tuckin acquisitions in the past. Over the last um, several years, though, we have actually switched to very much like what you were saying earlier. So, for example, the acquisition that we just announced um, uh, a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Kemp is, is, is a product area that we do not today have an offering in. Uh, it is adjacent to us. Uh, we believe it is important for our customers for us to address that particular aspect of it. It enables... Uh, these business applications to be always on and, and highly performant. So, you know, we have software that allows uh, an IT organization to build it, put it in uh, on, on at scale, either in the cloud or on-prem, and then, you know, monitor it and see if it's working well. But then if it isn't working well, how do you make sure that it's always on and how do you make sure it delivers the high performance? Camp products complement ours that way. Uh, last year, we acquired Chef. Um, which is a what is called DevOps or DevSecOps in in the in the world today, which is helping developers and and operations folks work well together, and developers and security folks work, work well together, and deploy large scale applications uh, automatically in and, and and automate that infrastructure as well uh, in terms of deployment and. And, and that is something we didn't have. So, so these are all, you know, the, the, when you think of develop, deploy, and manage, if, if you had talked to me five years ago, we were squarely in the develop phase. Right. And, and with um, a chef, with Ipswich acquisition, with, with what upcoming Kemp, uh, it, it, this is very much a build out your portfolio while at the same time scale up. Uh, strategy. Yeah, you know, so it, it, is, it is that. It isn't a. Yeah. It isn't a technology tuck in, uh, in in the in the traditional sense. Chef was interesting to me because you only paid three times revenues for that company, and it seems like that's not a typical. Maybe I'm Silicon Valley has my brain twisted, but three times revenues is not a big number <laughs> when it comes to software. It is not. We we have been. Um, we are very disciplined, uh, Corey, about what we want to pay. Uh, you know, I have actually uh, realized over my career uh, of many decades in the enterprise software industry uh, that when one does acquisitions, the the biggest likelihood of failure starts at the price that one pays. Because if one pays too much, then then the performance has to be truly remarkable at every level and, and doesn't leave room for something going wrong. And invariably, when you acquire a business, there are disruptions, there are challenges, right? There, there are things that aren't, they don't go exactly the way you expect them to go. So we are very yeah, disciplined I mean, every, about- Everybody our, listening uh, to this show price. has worked up in a screwed up workplace that no one seems to know <laughs> from the outside, but they know very well when things aren't going well. And you see these acquisitions and you read these press releases and you think, oh, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. And it's hard to. <laughs> But, you know, it's, nice, it's, it's, it is a charming idea to be disciplined on price. But when the market has prices raging for the things that mm -hmm. are desirable, you know, you don't mm -hmm. want to be left uh, uh, without, a, without a, a seat at the table. You are correct. But, you know, what's interesting, Corey, is that the number of deals that are coming in the market is extremely high. 
So, uh, you know, we are looking at, so about a year ago, we were looking at about 50 deals a quarter. That number is approaching nearly 100 deals a wow. quarter now. So when you think about it, right, there's so much activity. So, yeah, you know what? There are some other assets that are priced in, in, at a pricing point that I can't uh, afford to buy or I'm buy not willing to, to pay that because I, I think the risk reward is, isn't there for us. Yeah. Uh, so we we look for the right assets and, and we're patient and you know, we've done three deals in 30 months. So, you know, we can do deals in this in this current climate. Uh, you know, we're paying again, you know, uh, less than four times revenue for camp. Uh, so, you know, we're paying $258 million for a, you know, $70 million business, um, run rate business currently and growing. So, um, you know, I, I think I think there is value to be had if one is willing to be patient and, and look for things. Um, and be disciplined. Let me ask also about your acquisition team. If you if acquisitions are part of your strategy, presumably you build an in-house team to evaluate these things and get answers to potential companies, potential acquired companies uh, quickly. What what does that team look like, and what is putting together a team? Uh, describe that to me. Yeah, so so uh, you're absolutely correct, Corey. We've actually built a, a central team for one aspect, and then they, a really sort of a team within our teams. Uh, to, for for other aspects, and let me talk about that. So, so we have a un, under um, uh, Jeremy Siegel, who is our uh, senior VP of Corp Dev. He reports to me. Uh, under Jeremy, we have a very strong team that is doing sourcing. They are the ones that are looking out in the market, looking for opportunities, seeing whether it makes sense from a product technology fit perspective, from a market need perspective, from our customers really being able to be successful with it and wanting that that product as an adjacent product from us. Right. So I think they, they do the initial what I call sanity check um, and also I, I might uh, need to see sort of the temperatures. To, I can use a sanity check here. And there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, it, it's a it's a it's an amazingly wonderful team. Uh, In fact, I'm going guitar shopping team, this afternoon. Team. Maybe I'm gonna, I'll bring them up just to <laughs> talk me off. The cliff. I'm not sure that I'm not sure their skills translate to guitar shopping, Corey, but <laughs> price discipline, not my but, specialty. Got it, got it. But on the other side, then we have within each of our functions, uh, whether it is the you know field organization or my GMs who, who run the products uh, divisions, or whether it's in finance or or, or people organization or, and so on, we have specific teams who over the, and we've by the way trained these folks, hired some, uh, and and you know with each acquisition we learn more. Uh, we have built um, what we call playbooks. Uh, you know, sort of our own best practices, if I may call it that, um, that we feel work for us and, and allow us to um, do the acquisition our way and and, and be successful with it. Um, we train our people on those. As we add people to those teams, we bring them up to speed on those playbooks and uh, they help us with due diligence. They help us with integration planning. And we actually get the integration planning work done before the deal closes. Uh, so we are actually ready to, you know, hit the ground running on day one. In fact, we would we do a fairly significant amount of integration planning even before we sign the deal, uh, not let alone before it closes. So even before the initial agreement is signed. Yeah, it's it, it's I gotta say it's interesting to see a company that's growing like yours is through acquisitions to be sure helping things, but also generating free Thank cash you. flow, even God forbid, generating a profit. <laughs> does it does it make you crazy to look across the aisle and look at all these companies that are achieving these fantastic valuations and are free cash flow and profit free? 
you know, it, it doesn't drive me crazy. The market is what it is. You know, I, I to me, you know, the business that we are and, and what we can do, and we, we believe we have an approach to building value for our shareholders that I think is going to deliver tremendous value over time. And I think sustained shareholder value growth is really a key aspect of what we are trying to do. And 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 so our approach is, is different. Um, we believe that, uh, you know, cash flow and, and, um, and, and uh, profitability and, and, and generating profits are, are, are what a business is all about. We, we um, have a dividend that we give out, which I have not heard of any sub-billion dollar revenue software company giving out dividends, but we do. We've done that for the last five years, pretty much from the, from the first uh, quarter that I came to progress. Uh, um, uh, we buy back shares when we don't have um, opportunities to buy companies. Uh, we have a healthy balance sheet because of the cash flow yeah. we generate and, and the profit that we have. So it's a, it is an unusual business. Um, uh, but Corey, the part of it is that, you know, we are a business that has been around a long time. So we have some very stable, strong products uh, that that generate a lot of that, that revenue that also helps and generate a lot of that uh, profit margin that helps us with investments in other areas. Interesting stuff. Well, Fascinating company, Progress Software, one that may have flown under the radar, even though it's a $2 billion company. Uh, Yagesh Gupta, the CEO, we do appreciate your time. And when the drill down, drill down continues, we're going to have one number that tells us a lot about Progress Software. We're going to talk about that free cash flow generation, which is uh, unique in the software world. We'll have that free cash flow number when the drill down continues. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And if you listen to The Drill Down every day, you can make that task a wee bit easier by using your smart speaker. Turn to your smart speaker and say something like, play The Drill Down podcast, and you can listen to our latest show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. We are back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We are talking about the free cash flow generation of this company, of Progress Software, and it is the biggest it has ever been uh, in the trailing 12 months. $171.5 million dollars for the last year. That's uh, for this company. That's incredible. It's rare in the software industry that you see real free cash flow generation for a company of a $2 billion size. But Isaac, that's exactly what we see with Progress Software. Very good. That was a great interview. What a nice guy. Yeah. I like nice guys. I'm unfamiliar with such people in my life. Yeah. That's why I do a podcast. Except for you, Isaac. Isaac Webster's a nice guy. He's also our executive producer. Real nice guy. It's Ben Wilson, our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.